Our scripture text this morning is Luke 9, Luke 9, verses 18 to 27. That can be found on page 1102. As you're turning there, just a brief explanation of where we're at in this series and what we're going to do going forward so you are aware of it. We're going to pause the series in Luke when we reach verse 51 of chapter 9. So, as I've said before, this chapter, Luke 9, serves as a transition point in the gospel, as well as verse 51. It may not seem like a large one, it may not be highlighted in our text, but it's in that verse that Jesus turns his attention to Jerusalem, and the gospel shifts at that point. We're going to pause going through the Gospel of Luke at that time to be picked up at a a later time. And after that, we will go and do a series through the Book of Lamentations, as we would see what God's Word has to say there for dealing with grief and lament, dealing with how we approach God when hearts are broken and when we even have a a trial to bear to the Lord. So that's what's going going to happen in the weeks ahead. Before reading from Luke 9, verse 18 through 27, let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, we come before you and we read of the basics of the faith. We read what is fundamental to us as Christians, our confession, your, your role as Messiah, and our response, our role in light of your identity and the reason that you've come. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us here, that we would open our hearts, that we would be active in seeking to listen to your word, to apply it, but also we know this is a futile exercise if you do not bless it. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, open our hearts, and may this word find reception there to nourish our strength and let us fix our gaze upon our Savior, he who is the center of our life, as we see here in this text. We pray this in your name. Amen. Luke 9, beginning in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Ascends the reading of God's word. People of God, we take classes on the basics. We take introductory courses on the fundamentals of a certain field. 
We might take an introductory, an introductory course or the basics to cooking, cooking 101. Maybe, I don't know if it's still offered, but the basics to car mechanics or mechanics. We might take an introductory course to Latin, and what we would expect in these courses, what we expect in these classes or books is to see what is the, the basics, the primary, the fundamentals there. You know, you start with the fundamentals. You start with what is the basis, the center of that field or that study, these things that are indispensable for this field. And that's the same in Christianity and theology. There are so many resources written on an an introductory class or an introductory book to theology, to Christianity. What does it mean? Well, that's really what Jesus is doing here. He has shifted his approach now to, to especially instruct the disciples. Up to this point, he's been displaying who he is in his action. He has been preaching and teaching, but now he, he hones in on, on these men, and he's teaching them especially what are the basics of, of Christianity, what are the basics of following him, what is the basis and basic truth of the Messiah himself, and that's what he's doing here. So these are the fundamentals to our own faith. If we were to create our own course on the fundamentals of Christianity, we better include this. This, this would probably be chapter one of what it means to be a Christian. It's fundamental to what we believe, and that's why Jesus is teaching that to us today as well. We are his disciples. This is instruction that was intended to be passed down through these 12 men to his people and to us that we would know what it means, who he is, and what that means for our own life and how we follow him. And so we begin this morning with a true confession. That's our first point, a true confession. Jesus finally gets time away with his disciples. Remember that they were seeking last time, time away, time of rest, and the crowds had somewhat ambushed them, and he had fed them. But finally, it seems, they get a bit of rest. You notice that Jesus is praying here. There's often momentous occasions in Luke's gospel comes as Jesus is praying, as Jesus is withdrawn to pray, and he has this time alone with his disciples. And so he asks them this question, Who do the crowds say that I am? This makes sense. Remember, the disciples had gone out. They had gone out into all the regions. They would encountered all the people. And so they're to report. What's the report about me, Jesus asks. And the disciples give the same one that Herod had given, the same one that Herod had heard when he had sort of looked into, who is this man? We hear some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets of old. And what's interesting here is that each of these opinions are rather high opinions. In fact, we could say there's an element of supernatural truth that has to be involved for this confession from the crowds. John the Baptist was killed. How can this be John the Baptist? Elijah, well, he had been taken up by the Lord to be sent again. That has to be the Lord doing it. Or one of the prophets of old, you have the same thing there. Even to declare him a prophet... They believe that he has come from God himself. Is this not a rather high confession from the crowds? Interestingly enough, we see the same today. In that day and age, there were few. There were the Pharisees, some of them, who totally rejected who Jesus was, who fought against him. Certainly the demons did. There was opposition to him. But but at this point, the reception of the crowds is favorable. 
And today, we, we sort of see the same. It's, it's not common for us to hear a very negative, scathing opinion of Jesus. We will hear it. But most people think, oh, he was a great teacher, a great prophet. Other religions really have a high opinion of Jesus. Muslims would say he was a great prophet. Mormons have a high opinion of Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses say he was the greatest and first of all creations. Isn't that a high opinion of Jesus? We see that these opinions are all lacking. Many have a high opinion of Jesus, but very few have the right belief in him. That's just the case. And so Jesus asks this question, not really because he's very interested in the rumor mill about him. He already knows that. It's not really interested to know, hey, what, is, what do the people think of me? It's to instruct those closest to him, because you see how he turns it. Okay, this is what everyone is saying. And then he asks that fundamental question, fundamental question to all of our lives, and the question that comes before you as well. You sitting there, but who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? He, he turns it personal. He really, in that way, doesn't care. really doesn't matter what these people are saying about him, but you, my closest followers, my disciples, what do you say? And Peter, Peter jumps in and speaks on behalf of them all, and his answer is on their behalf, and he says, the Christ of God. That's absolutely correct. This is one of those moments where, where Peter just hits it right out of the park. This is a home run. Perhaps not a grand slam, it's more of a solo homer, but he hits it. He's got it. You are the Christ of God. It's very important that we see the disciples get this. The crowds don't. The disciples do. You see this contrast, this, this way in which the Gospels presenting it are highlighting that. The people as a whole don't get it, but the disciples have it right. He's the Christ. And what does Christ mean? It's, it's the, the translation of the word Messiah. So Peter is saying, you are the Messiah. You're the chosen one. This comes at this transition chapter in Luke. Everything up to this point was leading to this truth and to this identity. And in this very chapter, this is the first of a strong acknowledgement of that, Peter and the disciples. But in the next story, in Jesus', Jesus transfiguration, God himself will give the same answer. He will speak it. And so you see these two witnesses, Peter and God himself, that say, you are the Christ of God. And it's important to know that. The disciples are in the right camp. They've got that figured out. And that's why this is a turning point in Luke's gospel. For some time, Luke's been trying to present the crowds to the people, to the reader, that the fundamental question of Christ's identity was moving to a point, and now we see it. And that's why, from this point on, largely the question of Jesus' identity is set aside because it's answered. Here he is, and so the attention now will turn away from that. He is the Christ. It's been truly answered. Peter gets a lot right. The disciples do as well. They understand this title of Messiah in many right ways. 
They grasp what that title means. They grasp the Davidic overtones to it, that, that he's the descendant, he's the answer to David himself, to David's line. They understand the regal overtones. They are in no doubt that Christ is the king even, that he's the Messiah and king who has come. That's their belief, and you see how true that is. They understand it in that way, but we also see that but they don't have it all figured out yet either. It's that understanding. Notice they get this right, but then notice what Jesus does. This is our second point, silence and suffering. You see how the text puts it. It's this true confession, and then fortunately or unfortunately, we, we have a heading right there that breaks up what happens. But if you're just to read the text... Verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And, and we would say, let's, let's blow the trumpets. Let's, let's send out the cannons of confetti. We have the answer. But that, that's not what Jesus does. As you keep reading, you're the Christ of God. And then he strictly charges and commands them to tell this to no one. Boy, that's not what we would expect you see that, that positioning right there, a confession, a true confession, the confession of life itself, and then Jesus says, don't tell this to anyone. That command is strong, that word strictly forbids, that word strictly commanded. Many would actually say that's a rebuke. As if he's saying now, you don't tell anyone this. You got it, Peter? You got it, disciples? Why? Why silence? That's what we see here, a command of silence to the news of life itself. Many have theories for this. I think there really is one answer, and that the reason he strictly forbids them to speak of this, that he commands their silence, is that he knows they don't understand this yet. We've gone through eight and a half chapters to get them to this point, but we're going to go through the rest of the Luke to get them to the point where they can bear witness correctly about who Christ is. You see, the way they understand this, this confession of messiahship is lopsided. So lopsided that if they were to just go out and proclaim this, they'd proclaim it in a very negative way, in a way that doesn't actually get at the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do. They understand this as a messiahship of glory and conquest, as a messiahship of conquering, but conquering in a wrong way. And so for those closest to Jesus, his ambassadors, his spokesmen, to go out and then proclaim, we have seen the Christ, he is the Messiah, let me tell you about him, they would then bear a false witness. And so Jesus turns his attention now to, you know my identity, you know who I am, but do you know why I came? You know what I came to do. And that's... That's part and parcel. That's part of the identity of who Jesus is. And so they get it in part, but not the whole. I think that explains why Jesus would be so strict to them about this, that they were not to go out yet. They will eventually, at the end of Luke's Gospel and the beginning of Acts, the second volume that Luke writes, we do see that they go out. In fact, they're commanded to go bring this message, but they don't have it yet. So Jesus instructs them, he strictly, strictly charges them not to reveal this. For a careless confession about Jesus at this point would spell disaster. 
to go out and believe and confess that Jesus has come to set up the earthly Jerusalem, that Jesus has come to conquer the Romans, would be the wrong way because that's not what he's come to do. And he wouldn't be fulfilling that. You see how they would be, be preaching a false way of the Messiah. And that's why he immediately goes in to instruct them about himself. And he says it so clearly. He tells them that rather than a Messiah of glory, he's a man of sorrows. Rather than the king on the throne that they expect, he's a suffering servant. We know the way the disciples were. You have the sons of Zebedee called the sons of thunder, James and John. And what had happened? Well, their, their mother comes to talk to Jesus and says, when you come to your kingdom, can my son sit on your right and your left? Often the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And, and what's that point? The point is, who's going to have these positions of honor in Christ's kingdom? This is, they're jockeying for position for that. That's the way they understand it. It's not it. They're ready to accept the Messiah of glory. But are they ready to accept a Messiah of suffering? And that's the question we turn on ourselves. Are we ready to accept a Messiah, a pathway to glory? Or are we, are we ready to accept a Messiah and a pathway to suffering? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus will begin the long process of explaining that the political implications of the title are not the current burden of his commission, that suffering comes first. Before all the glory that will come, there comes a cross. Before seeing him on the throne, they will see him dead. And that's not what the Jews were expecting. That's not what the disciples were expecting. But it is this fundamental confession of Jesus that he is the Messiah that now turns him to develop just what that means. That he has come for that suffering. And that's our third point, cross-bearing. Cross-bearing, what must I do? Having established that identity, we now see what Jesus does, how Jesus turns it. So Jesus had foretold his death he had said it very plainly and clearly. You see that in verse 22. You know, sometimes we think Jesus only spoke in parables and in ways that were hard to comprehend. This is as clear as it could get. This is what he tells them. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There it is. You know, it's not so much that the disciples couldn't comprehend what he was saying. They, they couldn't believe that. It didn't fit. It doesn't fit with their expectations. And then Jesus turns to that next section about taking up your cross. And that makes sense. Why? Because if you're following Jesus, you're following him down a path. And they thought they were following down the path of victory and conquest of the ascension of Israel itself. And here's that pathway laid out before them. And it's broad and it looks inviting. That's the way, Lord. Let's go there. And rather, Jesus turns in that fork of the road to this mighty path of glory. And all that he's able to do, he's clearly shown his power. And rather, he turns to a really dim, narrow path. 
surrounded by weeds and thorns. That's a way of suffering. It's not a straight, easy path to follow. It's one that's tiring and hard, and that's what he even says. He says, to go down this path is crucifixion. Are you ready to come? There's the answer. There's the mystery. It wasn't the path that they expected. And quite frankly, that is not the path that we expect. Nor the one we want. Brothers and sisters, here's the basics to what it means to be a Christian. Let's read it. Verse 23 and following. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Come, join a path of denial, of putting yourself to death and bearing a cross. That imagery, those words that he's speaking to his disciples, are stark. We're so used to it, it doesn't hit us, but he's saying, bear the mark of the worst suffering, the worst punishment that Rome could offer to the worst criminals to those who had forsaken Rome or who had done the worst of crimes, identify yourself with their punishment. That's what it would mean to take up a cross. What he's saying is that cross piece that would be connected to the post. And what did that mean? It was a sign of being forsaken. It was a sign of being judged. It was a sign of bearing suffering from the great authority Rome. And what Jesus is saying is, you take that, submit yourself to a will other than yours. And suffer and deny yourself. Do exactly the opposite of what we want to do and expect on this path that you will face crucifixion or trial. That is what Jesus is saying. Trial born not for yourself, but on account of the Son of Man himself. Let's not too quickly jump to what Jesus' confession means to us. I know that's what I do. I'm imagining that's what many of us would do. We would jump really quick over the fact that Jesus confessed what would happen to him. And we jump to this point and we say, oh, that's what it means. This is what I have to face. Oh, that's really hard. And we start applying it to ourselves. But before we do that, and we should do that, but before we do that, remember that Christ said, this is the path I go down. This is my path. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be forsaken. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. We follow a path of suffering and cross-bearing because Jesus did. And there isn't a soul among all of God's people who have ever lived who have suffered even close to what Jesus will suffer. It's, it's not a commander standing in the back of the troops and pointing to that death march or pointing to a charge that will kill them and say, go, and he stands safely in the back. This is the commander who is far out in front. 
and telling us to follow him. And that imagery is a good one. It seems as if we're following a commander to certain death. You're going to die in the process. He even says that. Are we going to follow him? Is that the basis and basics of Christianity? And it is. You see, we live our lives expecting, just like the disciples did, a Messiah of glory. We can just ride on his back as he just swings his sword and conquers all the foes and it never even will touch us, but that's not it. That's why it's hard. And you see what Jesus is is telling them. What, What good does it do to go after and gain all of the world itself but forfeit your soul. You see the mystery here is that the only way to gain your soul, the only way to gain life is to be crucified with Christ. It's to face the impossible, is to face the odds that seem and even will lead to certain death for Christ himself. But you see he's giving an answer too. It doesn't end with death. It doesn't end with him being killed. He also says on the third day, rise. He also says that there will be some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom come. And what does that mean? That most likely means his, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. That there will be those here who will see the answer that it won't always lie in death, but actually the answer to this great mystery and dilemma is that following that path that seems the wrong one to follow, that seems the harder one to follow, is the only way of life, and through it comes life itself. But our own hearts and the world will say, don't follow that path, close that road, go down the other path, seek the world itself. And how many... Do that. How many times don't we do that? And when it doesn't fall into place, this this isn't the path of glory. This isn't a path of ease. I'm not gaining the world, and we think, well, what what what's wrong with God's plan? It's it's malfunctioning. That's why this is the first chapter of an introductory to Christianity that Jesus is giving. That's not a failure on the plan. It's cross-bearing. John Calvin, I'm not, I'm going to paraphrase him, I don't have the exact quote, but talks about how we as Christians are those who are to be always ready to bear underneath that burden. And once that trial has left, to be ready to undergo another. That's hard. It's true, but that's hard. Jesus isn't leaving his people alone. He isn't telling them to affix the executioner's device to themselves, to bear a symbol of the noose or the executioner's axe, the electric chair, that's what the cross is. He isn't just saying, wear that for yourself. He's doing it, and we'll do it for the people. He is extending hope, because through this path comes life, resurrection, life. Through this path comes the kingdom, and in fact, there are those here who will see that kingdom, and we can say the same as well. We have seen the kingdom of God come in the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. And we are those who, when we take up the name of Christ and bear our cross for his sake, dying to self, we see the kingdom of God in its fullness as well. You know what this means? Your trials are not empty. Your suffering is not worthless. 
In fact, you could properly describe it as filling up the sufferings of Christ. Not that Christ's sufferings lack atonement, but that it was always the intent that all of the suffering God's people would be the suffering of Christ itself, bearing his name, we bear his sufferings. You see, to identify with that commander and that charge is to bear what that commander and that charge brings. The missiles of the enemy, the trials of life. Now, many undergo trials, right? You know, we can think, but is our life any different? You know, we we bear this cross, we say, but unbelievers kind of face the same thing, don't they? And it's true that this world, sin-cursed as it is, sinful, as wicked as it is, brings pain to all, but there is a difference. The sufferings of God's people is numbered on account of Christ himself, is for a greater purpose, whereas the sufferings of unbelievers is just a foretaste of what they'll face in full measure. That's a huge difference. That is why your suffering matters. That is why you can even take your your daily burden and realize that when you take what you're facing, as hard as it may be, and say, I am never going to reject my confession in Christ, you're bearing your cross, you're denying yourself, you're forsaking yourself, and what Jesus is saying, you will gain the world. It's that hope that bears us through the trials. But this has to be a self-denial. It has to be a voluntary giving up. Calvin also in this text gives a good illustration, a good uh, example of this, that we are to be voluntary in our trials and in cross-bearing. That's what he's saying. It's that idea, take it up. It's not that it was just placed on you by accident. You're taking that cross on your shoulders. You're volunteering for that charge. You're volunteering to follow him. And it's not volunteering. It's not bearing that in submission if all we're doing along the way is bucking against it. And Kelvin's example is like a rider on a horse. It it, it doesn't mean the horse is submitting to that rider and doing that voluntarily and well if the entire time he's trying to fling the rider off his back and because of the rider's skill he can maintain his his seat. That's That's not a mark of the horse and what it's doing. Rather, we are to be those who bear the rider, who bear the trial, who bear another's will, and we do it voluntarily. Let him take up his cross, and notice what Luke says, let him take up his cross daily. Daily. It's, it's not going to end on this earth. Of course, this, this doesn't mean, you know, this, we have to read this in light of all of Scripture. It doesn't mean as, this, as if every day on earth will be the dismal suffering that this is making it sound like. Jesus is is describing the basics of what it means to follow him. Our God is quite gracious. Our God gives to us mercies and rest as we need it, and that's clear in other passages of Scripture. But this is the fundamental way we characterize what it means to be a Christian, bearing a cross. We are then not to be surprised with what we see, just as the disciples we're supposed to not be surprised at them. You see, when if they were to have grasped 
Jesus' point, Jesus' teaching, everything that would have happened would have made sense. It didn't to them because they couldn't believe this. But a Messiah of suffering makes sense. And you see, it was the very men who didn't get it here, and we'll throw Paul into the mix later, but it was these disciples and later Paul who, who give the, the apostolic teaching, who give the very clear representation of how necessary it was that Jesus suffer and die to atone for our sins, to be a man of sorrows, to face crucifixion. We understand why that was necessary, and God be praised. The mystery has been cleared up. You see, we don't face the command of Christ to be silent. Because we understand what it means, what the Messiah means. We don't need to be silent and withhold that information because we do understand not only the true confession that's basic to Christianity, that he is the Christ of God, but as well that he has come to suffer and die, as well now that we are to do the same. Don't be silent about that message, live it out. Don't be the one who is characterized by Jesus here as the fool. The fool who would gain the world but forfeit himself. Who has gained everything only to lose it. Who has gone through all that the world can give. Who has gone through all the blessings of life but won't retain it and those blessings will fail. It also means don't fall into that trap of refusing the name of the Son of God himself because there's no salvation apart from it. Even if your life could be easier on this earth to reject his name, why would you make that foolish choice when you will not see the kingdom, when you will not face resurrection life, but only death? See, it makes sense, that lesson how many seek to profit from this world rather than forfeiting their life, rather than dying to self, and to do that daily. And that's the, the hard part. If we are ashamed, verse 26, if we are ashamed of Jesus and his words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into glory. What is it to be ashamed of the Son of Man? It means to reject him. It's, again, that illustration of the commander charging against that army. If a soldier is ashamed of that tactic, of that command, he will not follow. He will not bear that shame. He will ride in the other direction. That's what it means to be ashamed of Jesus and his words. The flip side of that, what does it mean to not be ashamed? It means to follow to follow that commander. You do, not, you do not place shame on him by saying what you're saying is wrong. It's not true, or that your tactics and your, your choice of action here is foolish. It accepts it as truth. The basics of the Christian walk and denying oneself comes in many forms. We forget that this basic walk is not a crown-wearing walk, but a cross-bearing one. To forsake yourself means not doing, not watching, not being entertained by that which is impure. That's to deny yourself. That's to take up a cross. That's to follow Jesus. To deny oneself would mean to lose one's family and friends because you stand for Jesus and not the world. To deny oneself means living a celibate life. 
being unable to fulfill those desires because you're not married and so you won't forsake Jesus' will to gain what you want. You see how foreign that is to us and our culture. We respond and say, that's not fair, even in that example, to be called to to live a celibate life as, as that example. We say, that's not fair. God wouldn't call one of us, one of his own, to such a life And you say, have you not read this text? It's to deny ourselves. That's the way of Christ. Not to sin against him. It's the same is true as well of all the the pressing topics. What does our world need to hear? It needs this message. It needs to hear that to deny yourself to Christ is not even to believe what you want about your gender but to believe what God has created and done. That's what it means to deny yourself. To deny yourself means calling that person who's, up, who's upset with you and apologizing and asking for forgiveness for maybe what you thought was just a really small slight and they've overreacted, but you're willing to deny yourself. You're wearing to, willing to suffer shame for the sake of Christ himself, and so you call and apologize for your wrongdoing, no matter what that person will do. Denying yourself means facing persecution, mockery, abuse, scorn, hatred, and death at the hands of the world for the sake of someone else. But brothers and sisters, that is to gain the world itself. That's to see the kingdom of God because we are not ashamed of him and his words and so he is not ashamed of us. We follow the man of sorrows, the suffering servant. And that's the the thought I want us to leave with, not skipping over that. We're called to do what Christ did to its fullest. We're called to follow one who loves us so much that he didn't leave us to suffer alone, but suffered far, far worse. That was his very role, and and to imagine, to know that he did that his whole life. Jesus took up a cross daily. It wasn't just at the end. He suffered more than any could, but that was his love for his people. He was the one to take the route that no one else could and no one else would. And when we put that image before us, again, that illustration, when when we look only at the commander who's in front and far in front of us. That's how we endure. To look at his heart for his people, to look at his plan, to look at his power. And we know even what is foolish to the world proves actually to be true in him. As you bear your cross, set your eyes on Christ himself. This is the way we find the kingdom of God and understand the basics for the faith. We are not ashamed of him or his words, and so he's not ashamed of us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, your words to us are weighty. They call us to a path that we we don't want. We don't want to stoop down and pick up a cross beam that means suffering. We don't want to have to deny ourselves. We don't want even to deny the things of this world. We don't want to place our wills in submission to another. 
And yet, Lord, your teaching and Holy Spirit, your work in us tells us to ask these very things and to, to even say and from the deepest parts of our heart, no, truly, that is what we want. We pray that we would be those to see the wisdom that you implant in your people and in your word and that we would be those to bear a cross, but to be those who bear it in your power by gazing upon you and what you did, by gazing upon your promises, by knowing that at the end of cross-bearing comes resurrection, at the end of cross-bearing comes ascension, at the end of cross-bearing comes the glory of the Father, the Son, and the angels of which we will not only see, we will be blessed with, gifted with. Give to your poor pilgrim strength on this earth as we have our backs hunched and our muscles ache and our bodies groan under this weight, but we set our gaze on what is better. Uphold us in this, we pray in your great name.